Well, good morning again. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning. Michael Landis is a longtime member and servant of this church. We know him in two ways. We know him as Michael and we know him as Stephanie's husband. Uh, his dear wife, Stephanie, is very active here as well. And uh, Michael is the president of the Eisenhower Health Foundation. After being very effective, very successful in that career, he decided he wanted to be, go to seminary and learn more about God. And he, had, he sent some of his early papers that he was writing into courses to me, and I thought, this man has incredible insight into the scriptures. And I asked him if he would share some of those insights with us, and so we've asked Michael to be our speaker for the morning. Michael, thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you, Sid. Let me just open in prayer. Lord, you've told us the world. You've told us about it. You've told us, told us about your word, which is the truth. Not the world is the truth. You are our savior. You are our truth. You are our living water. You're our vine. Let us be fruitful through your love, inspiration, and through your word, as inspired by Isaiah, who wrote thousands of years ago, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you. So good morning. Um, you know, my daughter yesterday, uh, our daughter, we were having lunch, and she said, you're not even ordained. Why are they letting you speak? You know, isn't that just like your kids? So, you know, that was a real confidence builder. And um, so I said, they just, you know, they, it, it, Pastor Sid wants to help a fledgling seminarian and to, to get it going. So God bless you, Sid, you know, for letting me have this chance. But also, what a pleasure it's been having you as a leader, as a part of the history of this wonderful church, which has a great history. So let me go back seven days in time. Sid, Pastor Sid spoke to us about how Jesus assembled his team of minor leaguers, if you weren't here last week, and how he shaped them into what they could become. And the original major league apostles, all willing to die for their newfound faith. And as Pastor Buzzle said, you know, you can't and they couldn't be holy in a hurry. You can't do that. It takes shaping. And I thought to myself, well, what would Jesus say is the first step toward becoming holy, becoming more like him? Do we really have that kind of power? Do we have that in us to make those kinds of changes? Did the apostles have that kind of power in them to make those changes? Let's go way back now to Genesis 1, 26, 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God saw all that he had made and behold, God said it was very good. Just reflect on that for a second. God made all creation, but he called us and the only thing he called very good was us. Then what happened? 
Well, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for disobedience. Then Cain inherited that disobedience, killed his brother Abel, and the history of humanity just really unfolds from there. So I spent time studying that secular history of humanity at the University of Washington as well as at Stanford University. And frankly, I pretty much concluded it didn't take long, but I was slow, that the history of humanity has been a pretty ugly history when you think about it. And because of my dad's work, we traveled all over the world and we saw all types of um, activities, societies, governments, including we traveled to, lived in Turkey, Holland, Singapore, the republics of Texas and California. And when I was 16, when we were in London, I remember my professor slash history teacher, he asked our entire class, he said, how many wars are there going on in the world? And by the way, we didn't have Google. You didn't have internet at that time. This was 1971. And I counted, we all counted. We went through Time Magazine or Newsweek or US News. And we counted the wars and at the time, there were over 30 wars going on around the world. And you remember the Vietnam War was one of them. Today, according to the Geneva Academy, which looks and finds armed conflict around the world and keeps track of it, how many do you think are going on right now? 110. 110. And we thought that World War II would end all wars, if you remember that. We'll come back to that. Do we, as creations of the one and only God, really have the power to change? Do we have the power to change ourselves? Do we have the power to change that history? Can it change? You know, I think that Kathy gave a sermon in her prayer because she talked about and she asked us to turn as a nation, to turn back, to, to repent individually and as a nation. So the answer is in that prayer. The answer is in that prayer. And through the power of God, certainly, the answer is yes, because he shapes us. As Pastor Sid talked about last week, if you, if you think of and you think back on what Peter was like, before he gave his life for Christ. He denied him three times. So the power to change comes from that beautiful combination of gifts that God's gifted us with and that have been there for, from time immemorial, from creation. One of those gifts is the power that he's given us of our free will. So since Easter, Pastor Sid's alluded to a number of gifts, if you were to have written them down, you would have had five, six, seven of them that he's talked about. But I want to talk about one of them that leads to many. And so Matthew 4, I'm not sure if that's what we have up there, Matthew 4, 17. Let me just give it some context. Jesus had been baptized by John, had heard the voice of his father say, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And... He'd been tempted for 40 days before that, had been ministered to by angels. Then upon learning that John the Baptist had been arrested, 
Jesus began his public ministry. It was John checking out and Jesus checking in. And remember, they were cousins, spiritual cousins as well. John's, or Jesus' first words, and John's first words, Jesus' first public sermon, the first word he spoke was repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. That's what, that's what he said. John MacArthur, who's really a great theologian, said, the opening word of Jesus' first sermon sets the tone for his entire ministry. So Jesus began his ministry with the word repentance. How does he end it? So believe it or not, he shares the exact message after his resurrection and before his ascension. Jesus re reminded that group of what had become now, hopefully, major league apostles. In Luke 24, quote, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So I have to admit, and I was telling Pastor Sid this when I did this background, I think I missed this. I, I, after the resurrection, I thought, well, Jesus was sending his promise helper to us. He's infusing believers with the Holy Spirit. He's blessing all of us with his assurance of being our living Savior, which we can draw on daily and throughout eternity. But I think I missed that part about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But, but repentance, what does it really mean? What... what um, what is really, I guess, what's the definition? So I, I went to the Old Testament, ancient Hebrew. By the way, you learn to do these things when you're in seminary, or you're going to get an F. And I, and I looked at um, the Old Hebrew definition. There's two of them, Neham and Shuv. The one we are, we are going to, or I'm going to speak about, is Shuv. And by strict definition, it means to turn. It means around 180 degrees or return. So the Old Testament Hebrew patriarchs like Abraham, as well as the prophets, including Moses and Samuel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, they were all, as we know, inspired by God. And do you want to know how many times they used the word shuv? Over a thousand times. One thousand times. So it's safe to he say that the Hebrews knew what the meaning of shuv or repent was. So let me give it some context. They had been a culture, a nation for over a thousand years, thousands of years actually. Shuv or repent what meant to them, so I'm going to go back, and it was a reflection of what they would do as a nation if they got off path. It meant to them, shuv meant a journey. It meant a pilgrimage. It meant give this constant attention, this word repent. Give it, be vigilant. There's a sense of purpose and action and activity about it. 
A couple weeks ago, I saw Rabbi Kreiman, who's the rabbi of Bikur Shurlim or Korlim Synagogue in Palm Springs. And he was rounding on his patients at Eisenhower. And you, you can't miss Rabbi um, Kreiman. He's a wonderful man. He's got a traditional long beard, wears a yarmulke. His face is just full of wisdom. And he literally was just walking into the, to the main entry of the Washington building. And I flagged, you know, I waved at him, and he came over to me. And I said, Rabbi, <laughs> just out of the blue, I said, Rabbi, tell me, what's the word for repent in Hebrew today? And I wasn't testing him because I knew he knew the answer. He said, he said well, the word is teshuva, and it means, it means um, return to God. You can hear the word shuv, teshuva, teshuva. It's the same. It's the, it's the root. And then he said, just like a rabbi would, he, he did this. This is true. He said, well, let me ask you a question. And he said, how long would it take you to walk from the eastern horizon to the western horizon? And I said, now this is getting, this is good, I'm thinking. I said, well, um, God, I don't want to be wrong. So I said, forever. I think it'd probably take me forever. He said, he smiled. And he said, I'm so glad you answered it that way. He said, teshuva and shuv, it means to turn 180 degrees. He said, you can do that in an instant. And then I felt like telling him about our Messiah. <laughs> I felt like about telling him about Jesus, the real Messiah. But Jesus was Jewish. John the Baptist's Jewish. Our apostles were Jewish. They knew the full impact that this word repent would have on their hearts and the minds of the nation of Israel and the Israelites and the Greeks that were coming out to listen to these public sermons that were going on. Because shuv was a word that was meant to turn people back to God. It was in, there was no um, at all doubt about what, this in, what the word, just one word meant for these people that were showing up in mass droves to hear a prophet, what they thought was a great prophet, starting with John and then leading to Jesus Christ. So we think of, well, let me, let me back up. What, what did it mean in Greek? Because it had been translated. So I've just told you what it means, meant in Hebrew, old and current. In Greek, it has a root word associated with it, metanoia. Some of you have heard that word, metanoia. It means a change of mind, a change of heart, and in this case, towards God. So I don't know if we're getting or I'm getting somewhere with this, but you get the picture that in a way, we in English have a very limited view of the word repent. Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. The Lord made us to need him. Research shows humans, we have a distinct thing about us. It's an internal, inside thing that we know there is a divine. That's a fact. We're created, why? We're created in the image of God. 
But what happens? We fall in love with ourselves and things that we create, we self-create. We create the divine. We think all day long about my will be done, not thy will be done. And God knows with that, as I started, we, th we create conflict. We create internecine issues. We create our own solutions to the issues that we created. But we don't turn to him necessarily as a reflex. And neither did the Hebrews necessarily. We know a lot about the Old Testament. What about the New Testament nations? What are we doing? It's the same answer. So he said, I'm going to give you some gifts when you turn to me. He doesn't say it just like that because Jesus wanted us to understand his parables. He wanted to understand what was behind it and the depth of it. And he wanted us to come to those conclusions along with him. But he gives us his love, faith, forgiveness. All of which he told us would move mountains. But we have to take the first step. We have to turn to him. The God of the universe created us, saw his human creation go astray. He sent his one and only son to save all of us from ourselves. And what's the first word that his son said who had been there from the beginning was the same thing that he shared with the chosen people, with the chosen nation, with everyone that would listen to the prophets. Repent. So my world, by the way, today, I don't think our world, I, I don't see it. I don't think it tells me to repent. I don't see it in advertising. I don't see it on television. I don't see it in the news stations. I don't see it I don't see it and hear it sometimes in churches. I don't see it um, blared across my uh, emails that come through and I get a hundred and some every day. I don't see the word repent in there. So I, we know the world has become much more secular than ever, which is why I say, our conflicts, our solutions, they've just become even deeper, more difficult, more complex. It's the kind of thing, and the reasons for it, the same reasons that 15 years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer, prostate cancer, and Stephanie was diagnosed with breast cancer, that the way I dealt with it, you know, we both had a wake-up call. Stephanie, of course, if you know her, she dealt with it incredibly well through faith. She grabbed the Lord's hand. Me, I got angry. I was, I was resentful. I went on a whole pathway, which was all about why me. So, you know, we, re we endured that whole time together and one of the more beautiful things that came out of it was a deeper relationship with my pastor Doug Gerard 
because of God's grace, I think, I don't think, uh, I, I, I realized that I had a lot of making up of time in my relationship with my Creator, with the Lord. I'd ignored the reality of the need to turn to Him. I think that's why the word repentance is so meaningful to me. And why today, it's, it's a word that I look at and I see it and I view it as a pathway. I see it as a kind of a new beginning. I see, I see repentance not as that, you know, crouched in a corner crying for sharing my, my guts for forgiveness to, to my Lord. I see it really as a, as a positive, as a journey, as a step in the right direction, as the first step. For me, it's really filled, it's a word filled with hope, divine hope. So, I just ask you, because that's what I experienced. Whether you're wrestling with something, you hear you that are guys that are online, some anxiety, some issue about not only going on inside you, but something with others that you love or something that is going on in the world that doesn't seem to resolve itself, that causes a great amount of anxiety, even fear for you. Just ask yourself, are you turning to him? Is that a reflex for you? Are you depending on the God of the universe to help you, to help you with the faith that's necessary, that he promises he'll give you, the trust that he promises, the covenant that he has for you to help you not only love yourself even more, to be able to love others, to forgive. Do you need that? If you do, turn to him. God wants us to face a fact of life. And that is, I've said it, we need him. Well, why do we need him? Romans 3.23 pretty much put it in perspective. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I don't know about you, but I was raised pretty independent. And heaven knows as an American, um, which in, in our culture preaches nothing but you know, independence. We, we're going through graduations right now. In those graduations, how many of those speakers say, turn to the Lord for direction? It's about following your own personal dream in life, isn't it? The world is out there spinning in a way knows that it needs a savior. But I want you all to know that as Christians, we're not immune. Remember, and I know you all know that, that, are, that have been Christians forever, from the need to turn to him minute by minute. I like what um, Paul said in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
but Christ lives in me. In the life which I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And Lloyd Ogilvie, I just love that man's morning sermons that Pastor Doug gave to me. He said, the Christian life begins with a crucifixion, our own. Christ meant what he said when he preached repentance. He's telling us, I have the power. I have the power to change you. But you have to use your willpower, which is gifted to you, to return back to me. And by the way, how often can you turn back to me if you've fallen short, you've missed the mark, you've sinned? We don't want to talk about that word. How long? Christ says seven times 70, meaning forever you can turn back to him. Let me share a, a story of a, and yes, I'm wrapping up, hang in there. Let me share a story, though, of a person who was a hero of mine, who, by the way, attended this church, and he sat in the seventh row back, I think it's seven, on the right, where the Abergs are sitting right now. And he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. It was the supreme commander Here's um, something that you don't read about, about Dwight Eisenhower. This is in the book Eisenhower Declassified by Virgil Pinkley, who was a United Press International reporter who was close to Eisenhower. And just let me start this and see if I can finish. As General Ike stepped into the blackness toward his car, Wind whipped and rain lashed at him. There was something important he still had to do. On a scrap of notebook paper, he hastily scribbled. He said, if any blame or fault is attached to the attempt tonight, it's mine. In nervous concern, he mistakenly dated that note July 5th instead of June 5th, 1944. And he slipped it into his wallet. The wind screamed through the trees. He shuddered. The, sh they sh it, the wind shuddered. The caravan dashed a sheet of rain against it. He could not get the weather out of his mind. In fact, the old Mark Twain witticism that had been worn into a cliche came to him. Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. And then he thought to himself, nobody? An idea lit up in his mind as he told, as he told me many years later. He said, why hadn't I thought of this earlier? There was somebody who could do something about the weather. General Eisenhower fell to his knees, closed his eyes, clasped his hands in prayer. God, creator of the world and all things, grant us good weather and protection for our troops. He hesitated for an instant. God, I've done the best I can. You are my commander-in-chief. I now turn the command over to you. Now, we don't read that in our history books, do we? Probably one of the greatest times ever in our modern history 
where one human being had the weight of the world on his shoulders, transferred the weight to the God of the universe. So, I want to summarize, and I'm sure you're all waiting for that. You can unlock the doors now, Sally. I told her to lock the doors. When they find out that I'm preaching, they're going to leave. Jesus Christ, he makes it simple. All we have to do when we have a problem, we have an issue, when we have something like that on our shoulders, turn to him, return to him. You don't have to think of it as repent. Just think of it as, I'm turning to the God of the universe to help me with this problem. He gives us a gift of his spirit to trust him. He gives us a forgiveness that passeth all understanding. He promises this gift of grace to us, which is unmerited, always has been unmerited. The covenant that he had with his chosen people were unmerited. Our gift is unmerited. Gives us an ability and a spirit to change. That's the power he gives us to grow, to heal, to return to feeling joy, which I remember feeling. How does he do that? It's not something that psychology or psychiatry or science can actually describe. It's a love. He loves you. He imprints his love inside you. And then you can receive, when you return to him, that love on that journey that we're on. Boy, do we need it. So what are the gifts? The gifts of forgiveness, the gifts of faith, the gifts of his indwelling. And Jesus knows how it starts and needs to start. I think it's pretty profound. As for me, as I finish, you know, my dark days, my dark night of the soul, which some theologians would call what's necessary for you to be able to stand here and share that so many need to go through. Well, for me, there was a time when it was full of pain, my soul. But it's now filled, it's really filled with his love. I don't have that anger. I don't have that resentment. I don't have that fear of the future. I don't have that fear of what the world can do to me or my family or our nation. That's not inside me anymore. I have a true dependence on him. And it's inside, deep inside me as a gift. It's not something that I work for, and I accept it, and I love him for that gift. So, at the end of every quarter, when I finish, I think Pastor Sid asked me, how are you doing? How do you, what do you think of seminary? At the end of every quarter, I just am in such awe. And I'm not an idiot. I mean, I'm not some fool that's following tradition. 
I actually went to universities that were secular. And I'm doing this backwards at the age of 66. Now I'm in seminary. I wish I would have done it when I was young. Because the explanation of the way the world works is so perfect, it leaves me in awe. So with that, I just pray that each one of you turn, return. In your own way, repent for the love of Christ. Amen. Thank you.